Good morning, once again, good to have you with us. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Nehemiah, book of Nehemiah, Old Testament book. We've been working our way through this book. We're uh, almost at the place where we're going to be stopping. We've got one more week, we're going to stop, we're going to go into another teaching series, and we're going to return back uh, to the book of Nehemiah to finishing up this summer. You'll know that the book is divided into two parts. The first part goes all the way up to chapter 7, and it's about rebuilding And then the second part is about reviving. And so this summer we'll hit that up again. And you can see in your bulletin there we'll be heading into a new teaching series in a couple weeks as we kick off our Easter weekend. This is Rebuild. Stamina is the title of this weekend's message. Nehemiah chapter 6 is what we'll be covering. I I got this uh, emailed to me a couple years ago. Let me read this to you. It says, Dr. Phil proclaimed, the way to achieve inner peace is to finish all the things you've started. And so I looked around my house to see all the things that I had started and hadn't finished. And before leaving the house this morning, I finished off a bottle of Merlot, (laughs) a bottle of white Zinfandel, a bottle of Bailey's, a bottle of Kahlua, a package of Oreos, the remainder of a box, or the remainder of both Prozac and Valium prescriptions, the rest of the cheesecake, some saltines, and a box of chocolates. You have no idea how freaking good I feel. That's what it said here. Please pass this on to those you feel are in need of inner peace. Isn't that crazy? So, uh, you can see on the notes that they finished the wall, but I think their inner peace is obviously coming from a different source, obviously. And, and, and you're going to find out that they don't make a real big deal about this. It's just almost kind of like as you work through the text, it's just like, ah, and we finished the wall. Not much fanfare. We'll talk about that and what that means. So in verse 15 of our text, we'll read it in just a minute. So the wall was completed. And let me just uh, bring you up to speed. If you haven't been hanging out with us here at Desert Breeze, so we work through this teaching series, Nehemiah... Uh, He was a cupbearer of the king, and you've got to understand that the context here is that Israel was defeated and scattered throughout the ancient world some 140 years earlier. And and so they had, had attempted to go back to the nation of Israel and rebuild the wall, back to the land of promise, and they were unsuccessful. And so Nehemiah is... uh, Boy, he's grieved over this, and so the king allows him to go back, and he rallies the troops, and they're in this process of rebuilding. Now, the rebuilding of the wall really speaks of uh, how God rebuilds our lives, and it is amazing. I mean, it is amazing what God will do with our brokenness when we give him all the pieces. That's the picture we've got. This is an Old Testament picture of this New Testament principle of, of sanctification and wholeness. And going back to the promised land, the land of milk and honey is, a, is an Old Testament picture of the New Testament principle of John 10.10, 10, that Jesus came that we might have life and have it to what? Have it to the fullest. So, I mean, it's, it's really a cool picture for us as we've been kind of walking through this. And now they get the wall completed in this study. And, uh, and I, in fact, I've got you a couple fill-in-the-blanks here really quick before we pray and then we read our text. But let me let you fill in the blank here. It's not how you start the race, but how you finish it that matters most. 
And so we're really looking here at stamina. Webster defines stamina as the strength required to withstand fatigue or hardship. Um, So the difference, I want to make a really quick distinction between saving faith and kind of a superficial faith. There are those that have a superficial faith. They think they have saving faith, which in reality they don't. So it's really important that we make a distinction here. The difference between saving faith and superficial faith is not intensity of emotion at the start, but duration over time. And um, saving faith is verified not by never falling, but by always getting back up. See, that would be uh, stamina. In fact, Proverbs 24, 16, it says, The righteous falls seven times and rises again. So to have stamina doesn't mean you don't fall down, but you always get back up. You keep going. You keep heading towards Jesus. And, and in fact, here's kind of the, the kickoff verse, the launch pad for us this morning. I think it's on your notes there. It's 2 Corinthians four sixteen. So we do not lose heart. Would you agree with me that there's a lot of things in, in life that would cause you to lose heart, make you struggle? It seems like things are getting worse and worse, finances and relationships and the issues of our lives. But this is what he says. He says, we do not lose heart. Why is that? Though outwardly, though our outer self is wasting away. How many would agree with that one? You feel like you're just, you're wasting away little by little. And the only ones that wouldn't be raising their hands this morning would be those that are below the age of, 20, I guess. I think once you hit 30, 33, it's all downhill after that. So if you hit 30, you know, you're at the prime right there. And then after that, everything starts breaking down in our bodies. And so, but he says, so we do not lose heart, though outward, outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed. How? How often? Day by day. Day by day. I don't know if you had a chance to watch the Summer Olympics 2012 London this last year. It's pretty cool. I mean, it's one of my favorite sporting events. And I particularly like the middle distance. reason for that is because oftentimes, I mean, the, the smaller, the shorter sprints are a little bit harder to, to really watch. And you can't, I mean, you can see uh, some of, you know, like Usain Bolt, who can almost kind of like in the last part of the race kind of stretch out ahead of everybody. That's pretty exciting. But even more so in the middle distance and how many times I've seen someone who is running in the middle of the pack and then as they get towards the end of the race, what do they call that? Anybody knows what they call that? When they pick up the pace a little bit, they accelerate. It's called a what? It's called a kick. If you're a runner, you have this kick, you have this momentum, you have this acceleration. And then they begin to pass one person after another person after another person. And before long, as they come towards the finish line, they even lean into the finish line. That's how I want to live my life for Jesus. I mean, as I'm heading towards the end of my life, as my body is wasting away, my inner self, I want to be renewed day after day, I want to be passing one person after another person after another. Then I want to lean into the tape as I'm finishing this race. How many would agree with me? That, that would be a good way to, way to do it. And, and yet, here's what troubles me as a pastor that I've seen too often is uh, people who start off the Christian life with unbelievable fervency and emotion and woohoo! And about six months into it or a year into it or even four or five years into it, then they're fizzling out. And then even if you were to talk with them, you would say, hey, uh, like, where are you in your relationship with God? And they're kind of like, I don't even know if I believe in God anymore. How many have ever 
encountered people or have seen that happen in someone's life where they just kind of fizzle out in their faith. It's pretty troubling, isn't it? Pretty troubling. So we're going to talk about stamina today. None of us want to fizzle out in our faith. In fact, our faith should be growing stronger and stronger as we head towards the finish line to go and be with our Savior. Would you pray with me? Let's take a moment. Would you bow your heads? And then we're going to look at our text. And we're going to learn really what we need to be able to finish strong. I think Nehemiah gives us some really great insights here on that. Father God, we, we are aware of the fact that, that there are many that start the Christian life like a, like a lightning flash, hot, fast, dazzling, but very few, it seems, finish the course with sustained enthusiasm and vigor. And, and God, we know that's crazy. That's crazy and inconsistent with knowing you and having you in our lives. Even as it says here, God, in 2 Corinthians 4.16, help us not to lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. May our inner self be renewed day by day. May today not be an exception to that rule. May we be renewed as we spend time with you. It tells us in Isaiah 40.31 that they who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. So God, as we wait upon you through the study of your word, May we mount up with wings like eagles. May we run and not be weary. May we walk and not faint. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Um, I brought some Kleenex up here with me. Where did I put it? Oh, here it is, right in my back pocket. I leaned over and my nose started running. I don't know, it's just this allergy season or something. So excuse me if I have to wipe my nose from time to time. Those of you that are right up here real close here, (laughs) try not to get anything on you, but uh, I'm sorry. Sorry for that. What's that? I must be over 30? Yeah, my body's just like just falling apart. I'm falling apart right in front of you here. (laughs) So, okay, let's read this text. I'm going to work completely through it, make very uh, few comments. and, uh, And so here's where we're headed with this. If you want to finish strong... What do you need to do? And in Nehemiah, so we, chapter 6, verse 1, Now when Sambalat and Tobiah and, uh, and Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies... And see, these are the enemies. I mean, when he stepped his foot in there, that region, these guys were there to greet him. This was his welcoming party, his antagonists. They've been antagonizing him since the beginning. And so the enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates. Sambalat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come and let us meet together at Hecaphirim in the plain of Ono, but they intended to do me harm. So he discerns, these guys aren't trying to help me. There's, there's almost this kind of smoozing that they're doing here, and they're trying to invite him. Hey, you need to take a vacation. In fact, one of the commentators uh, said it was actually Swindoll. Charles Swindoll said that this plain was kind of a, more of a, like a, a retreat, a place where people would retreat and just uh, kind of vacation spot. So they're kind of trying to smooze him and get him, hey, let's come, take a break. But he discerns, but they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times. So these guys are relentless. Four times in this way, and I answered them the same manner. 
And in the same way, Samballot for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. So an open letter means that anybody and everybody can read it. And he's going to make some pretty, pretty harsh accusations about their motives and what they're doing here. In fact, it's treasonous is what this guy's saying about them. It was written, it is reported, in it was written, it is reported among the nations and Geshem. Um, also says it that you, the Jews, intend to rebel. That is why you are rebuilding the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear of these reports. By the way, if the king heard of these reports, he could lose his head over this. So like I said, it's very treasonous. So now come and let us take counsel together. Hey, we want to talk with you about this. Then I sent to him, notice his response, this is important. So I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your mind. Isn't that good? It's like, yeah, you're just pulling that out of your mind. And so, for they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. Check this out. This is now the sixth, I think if I count it accurately, this is the sixth time in the, his memoirs, in six chapters, where he prays to God. So, I mean, this, this book is saturated with prayer. And so he says, but, but now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. It's a great prayer. Verse 10. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of uh, Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said... Now, he goes to this guy's house, and it, he's a prophet, and he, he, it's almost as if he's going there to get some encouragement. But what this guy says isn't very encouraging. And he immediately was able, because of his discernment, was able to say, hey, what you're saying is not very encouraging. It's not helpful. So this is what this guy says to him. Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. So you can see this kind of urgency. And, but I said, should such a man as I run away? Oh, that's good. He's like, wait a minute. I'm, I'm part of God's, God's, I'm on God's team. I don't need to be running like that. So we're going to talk about that. That's having just really good healthy boundaries. And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? It was, it was against the, that, the law, so to speak, or the, the Jewish law for him to go into the temple. It's only for priests. So he understands that. This guy's trying to get him to violate the law. And then he goes on. He says, I will not go in. And I understood... And saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sembalat had hired him. For this purpose, he was hired that I should be afraid. You keep seeing that over and over again, this intimidation, this fear, that I would be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Now, here's another prayer. Here's the seventh prayer. Once again, remember Tobiah and Sembalat. Oh, my God. He's just like saying, hey, these guys are mean and nasty, and God, I'm just going to turn them over to you. You're going to take care of them. According to these things, so, oh, my God, according to these things that they did, and also the, the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. These are prophets that are, that are claiming to speak in behalf of God. He's saying, God, you, you take care of them. God, you're going to bring justice. 
So he's got this sense of like he's got forgiveness and he's able to move on and, and stay disconnected from them and not play into their little games because he's, he can turn it over to God. God will take care of them. And uh, where was I? Verse 15? Okay, verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month, Halul, in 52 days. That's it. They got it. They finished it. Notice how the, it continues on, though. There's not much, not much fanfare. You can tell that a guy wrote this. <laughs> ah, we finished the wall. See, if a, if a woman would have written this, the whole chapter would have been of them doing the wall, you know, finishing the wall, and the birds were singing, and the flowers were blossoming, and the sun was shining, and the bands were marching, and woo Nothing against women, it's just that uh, they're very relational and they really go into a lot more description. And, uh, and this is a guy writing this, so he just says, ah, we finished the wall. And I think there's a reason for that too, for that. Not much fanfare here. Listen to this. And when all of our enemies heard of it, all the nations, you'll notice where he kind of gives the credit to. He's not like saying, he's not going on a book tour. Hey, look at me, we're, we can build your wall too and... You know, we'll give you the six easy steps to, to build your own walls. He doesn't do that. He gives the glory to God here. He says, And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. With the help of our God. They, they looked at us and we just said, We can't figure it out why we're doing so good, but it must be God. Yep. They, they saw that. That's why the Bible says, let your light shine before men so they can see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. It says that in the fifth chapter of, of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. So, I mean, that's what he's doing. He's just like, yeah, I'm just pointing to God through this. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him. So he's even got people that are working within his ranks that are connected to these, these guys that are uh, deceivers, these troublemakers. And he's able to handle that, even people within his own ranks. So for many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, Shechaniah the son of Era, and his son Jehonanan, had taken the daughter of Meshulam and the son of Berechiah as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds. So these guys are in his ranks, Nehemiah's ranks, speaking of the good deeds of these guys that have been antagonists throughout. And, and, so, and, and they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobias sent letters to make me afraid. This is God's word to us this morning. So I think there's some really good truths on if I want to finish strong, what that uh, looks like. And here's the first one. It's on your notes. You need to have a transcendent purpose. You need to have a transcendent purpose. And, uh, and you see in verse 3, did you notice that when they came after him, they said, hey, let's go and meet in this, uh, this place, the plain of Ono, uh, he says, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. He has this uh, transcendent purpose. Verse 15, so the wall was finished in 52 days. And so, and as I stated, there's not much fanfare here. Now, here's what you need to understand. 
that if success inflates you, then failure will deflate you. If praise inflates you, then criticism will deflate you. So you have to live for more than just success or failure or more than more than just praise of the people or accolades or accomplishments or achievements. He's living for something much more than just building the wall. In fact, we already know that as we've worked through this book. He's living out of this fear of God, this joyful awe and wonder of the beauty and the glory of who God is and what He's done in their behalf and the fact that he's He's a child of God. He's part of the family of God. He knows that in that reality. And so that's what he's living for. So whether he ever got the wall completed or not, he would do it all for God's glory. And that's what that means to have a transcendent purpose. And we saw in verse uh, 16, our enemies heard, were afraid, fell greatly in their, own in their own self-esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished by the help of our God. So he's just, he's like, this is all about God's glory. Here's the deal. You're either living for your glory or God's glory. I mean, you can do a lot of really, really good things, but be doing it for your glory. He's doing it all for God's glory. He's living, he he has this transcendent purpose. The word transcendent means going beyond, exceeding the normal limits. The word purpose is just means meaning, significance, reason for living, what you live for. So a transcendent purpose would be your, your meaning for living goes beyond the temporal. So what are you living for? If it's, if it's something in, in this world, if, it's, if you're living for your family and then your family collapses, guess what? You're going to collapse. If you're living for how your t- kids turn out and they don't turn out so well, you're not going to do so well because you're not living for a transcendent purpose. Transcendent is going beyond the normal. It's beyond the temporal. He wasn't living just to build the wall. That's why there wasn't much fanfare. He was about building into the lives of people, but he was about giving glory to God and living his life for God's glory. And, and that will be, that's the only thing that will get you through the difficulties of life. If you live for your career and your career doesn't go so well, I mean, that's... So, so what I, I can often tell how, what I'm living for. I look at my inordinate emotional response when things don't go so well, and I have to look specific at the things that I'm kind of building my life upon. And the Bible talks about that. The, the Apostle uh, Paul says, to live is Christ, to die is what? Is gain. So he's saying, hey, he's in prison when he's writing that, and that's found in Philippians one twenty one. And he says, listen, I'm living for a transcendent purpose. Yeah, I'm in prison. Don't like it much, but I know that God can still use me. It's all about him anyway, and I'm cool with it because I'm going to live for him regardless whether I'm in prison or I'm out preaching or it doesn't matter. I am living for him. That's why it also says in 1 Corinthians uh, 10.31, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. So everything you do, you can do for his glory. You could be doing it for your own glory, but if you're doing it for your own glory, if that thing is taken from you, it's going to devastate you. So you have to live. If you're, gonna, if you're going to finish strong, you have to live for a transcendent purpose. And if you don't live for Jesus, you're going to live for something. 
Now, those of you that are here that aren't believers, and, and, and I, I appreciate you guys coming. There are those that will come in here, you're kicking the tires, you're just checking this place out. That's so cool. We're happy you're here. But, and you might think, well, I'm not a Christian, I'm not living for God, but you're living for something or someone. Those of you that are Christians even think that you might be living for God, which in reality, many times you're not. That's the struggle of our heart. Our heart is an idol factory. We're constantly replacing God with with people and things and accomplishments and successes. And the way that I know, typically, is I look deep in my heart and I can see my inordinate emotion because when it's overly attached to something and when that something is being threatened, blocked, or lost, then goes my emotional... So goes my emotions. I mean, there are times I was sharing with, with a couple last night. Nancy and I went out with them and we were hanging out and I said he, that I, I struggle with jealousy and envy. And, and, and the reason why I struggle with jealousy and envy, and you do too, uh, maybe you're just not aware of it, but, uh, but when I struggle with jealousy and envy, it's because I don't realize I'm not living in the reality of the Father's lavished love upon me that I would be called a child of God because if that were true, I would never have any jealousy or envy. But because I have jealousy and envy, it's because there's something in my life that I'm being jealous and envious about that I think that I can't live without. I'm living for that. See, if you don't live for Jesus, you'll live for something else. And it's the struggle of our lives and of our hearts, even as Christians. But everybody lives for something. And all I'm saying is that it's really important that we have a transcendent purpose, that we live for Him. There is only one purpose in life that will stand up to anything, and that is to live for Christ. We've got to live for Him. Jesus is the only Lord that when you fail Him, will forgive you. And when you get Him, He will fulfill you. You live for your career. You live for your kids. You live for your marriage. And it doesn't quite meet the standard. It is unbelievably unforgiving. Even if you do achieve the standard that you think that you need to meet, it's not fulfilling. Listen to me. It's not fulfilling. Only He can fulfill and satisfy your deepest longing and need. And so when you see the inordinate emotion running in your life, it just means you're running after another God. And you can, in that moment, stop worshiping whatever it is that you're worshiping, filling your mind with the beauty and the value of that, thinking that you can't live without that, and replace that with the Lord Jesus Christ. You repent and you believe. You put your faith in Him. You look to Him. And... um, I like what uh, St. Augustine, he said this, If there is a God who created, who created you, then the deepest chambers of your soul simply cannot be filled up by anything else. Only Him and Him alone. And, I, and so that's what we get in this, is that you have to have a transcendent purpose, but then also you have to have, here's the next one, number two, you have to avoid foolish alliances. And so he sees that these enemies are saying, hey, come, let us meet together in the plain of Ono. And uh, Nehemiah, he says, uh, but they intended to do me harm. Now, let me talk to you about this a little bit, okay? I talked about relationships a couple weeks ago. You guys know that there's a difference between um, forgiveness, reconciliation, and trust. Did you know that those are all different and, and there's a difference between each one of those? Because sometimes people, when they say that, oh, I need to forgive, they think reconciliation and they think trust. That's, that's not true. You can forgive someone. It only takes one to forgive. That's you. 
But that doesn't mean that you're going to reconcile with them because it takes how many to reconcile? Oh, I'm, I'm telling you right now, aren't I? Two, it takes two to reconcile. And you can only cover your side of the street. But by the way, to reconcile into a deep relationship, if you can't trust them, it would be unwise for you to reconcile with them. I mean, you can, you can cover your side of the street, certainly, but ultimately, before you can really entrust them with your life and really get close, maybe like you were before, trust has to be earned over time based on performance. You guys tracking with me on that? So therefore, you have good, healthy boundaries. So you forgive. It only takes one to forgive. It takes two to reconcile. You can cover your side of the street. You apologize for your part. If you were offensive, you know, you, you take responsibility. If they were offensive, you communicate the truth. But it's never loving to allow someone to sin against you. And if they want to continue to sin against you, that's where you go, whoop, see ya. Don't need a relationship with you. When you can begin to treat me with love and respect, then we'll, then we'll hang out together. See, and that's what he's saying. Here, he understands, he discerns. These guys are up to no good. They haven't reestablished any trust with him. And that's the reason why he says, no, nah. four times they come after him. And each time he goes, no, nah, I don't think so. I don't think so. Those are good boundaries. And he's avoiding these foolish alliances. Verse 10 through 13, he goes to this house of this, this so-called prophet. I think that he was, I think he was looking for some encouragement. I mean, we all long for encouragement. We want somebody to come alongside of us and know that they're kind of on our team and they're in our corner. And he goes to this guy only to find out that this guy's saying, hey, run for your life. Let's run into the temple. Let's go hide out. And uh, Nehemiah is quick to draw boundaries. Here's what we need to understand as it relates to foolish alliances. 1 Corinthians 15.33, and you'll notice I give you some cross-references. The best commentary for Scripture is always Scripture. And so 1 Corinthians 15.33, it says, Evil company does what? Anybody know what that verse says? Corrupts good character, good morals. Yeah, evil company corrupts good morals. And when I'm talking about um, foolish alliances, I'm talking about not just the people you hang out with, but I'm talking about the movies you watch, the books you read, the music you listen to. Those things that, that maybe celebrate and promote values that are different from your values that you're trying to live by. Those would be foolish alliances. Um, we become like those we hang out with. I mean, it's the essence of discipleship. So that when you start hanging out with Christians, so if you're really struggling with your life, you start hanging out with Christians so that they begin to, if evil company corrupts good morals, then good company can help to shape Good morals. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I found that in my life. And so we become like those that we hang out with. And so here's, uh, here's the key question. Where do I turn for acceptance and advice? Where do you go for advice and acceptance? Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. It says... Uh, Blessed is the man, total fulfillment and complete well-being, is the man that does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way of the sinner or sit in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in God's law, God's word, and he meditates on it day and night. He'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of living water. Whatever he does, he'll prosper. His leaf will not wither, and in season he will bear fruit. I mean, it just, it's, it's a phenomenal text, but at the beginning of that it says, Blessed is the man that does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way of the sinner or sit in the seat of the scornful. He's almost there giving us a progression that happens in our lives. 
that if we're not careful and if we have foolish alliances, they can begin to corrupt our morals. And he uses the word walk, stand, and sit. Blessed is the man that does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. That has to do with thinking and believing. Stand in the way of the sinners. That has to do with acting and behaving and sit in the seat of the scornful. That has to do with being and belonging. So there's this progression that he's talking about that you start thinking leads to acting or believing begins, leads to behaving and then before long we just we belong. We feel like we're at home with these foolish alliances. We watch stuff on TV we have no business watching. Just say, eh, it's no big deal. doesn't bother me anymore. It used to. doesn't anymore. Or music that we listen to or people we hang out with. And, uh, and my life will be either, my life is either being conformed to this world or being transformed by the Word. So which one would be true about you? And it really comes down to your alliances. Is your life becoming more and more like Jesus or is your life becoming more and more like the world? In other words, if you're hanging out with people, would people not be able to distinguish you and your life from those that are non-believers? And uh, now some of you might say, hey, wait, 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 wasn't Jesus a friend of sinners? Yes, he was. But he didn't go to sinners for his uh, acceptance and advice. So you can still be a friend of sinners and not turn to them for acceptance and advice. If you're turning for them, to them for acceptance and advice, then you might have an audience, but you don't have, a, you don't have a message. You've lost your message. And you can have a message and not have an audience because you're so disconnected. But there's got to be, like Jesus was radically different, and yet at the same time he's able to radically identify with the world. So there has to be that difference, and it really comes down to, to our alliances. So what are your alliances? What are, what are the people, where are the places that you hang out that are helping to shape your life more like Jesus? That's why small groups are so important. That's why coming to church regularly is so important. That's why the music you listen to and the books you read and, 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 and all of that has an influence on our life. So I, if you want to finish strong, have a transcendent purpose, avoid foolish alliances, and then maintain a good conscience. Let's talk about that. We've got a little bit of... need to talk about that one a little bit. Did you notice in verses 5 through 8... It says that in the same way Sambalat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter. This open letter is pretty scathing. I mean, it's just like, it's telling him that this is what you guys are up to. Have you ever had anybody kind of tell you what your motives were when you knew your motives weren't that? Kind of show of hands. It's like, it, it, doesn't that bother you? It's like, that's not my motives. And, and he's making this accusation like this is his motive. And the only reason why you, he would be able to say that is because he had a good conscience. Then I sent to him saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own head. I like the way that's put. It's kind of like you're pulling that right out of your own head. And, uh, and so let me talk about a conscience here just for a minute because I think that he had a really good conscience. A good conscience. A conscience is a smoke alarm in our, kind of in our soul. And you guys know that a smoke alarm is supposed to go off when the smoke, you got smoke, and so then you f chase it back to the smoke to see where the fire is so you can put the fire out. Now, what's interesting about smoke alarms is they have to be calibrated. And as a firefighter, we'd gone to homes where the smoke alarm wasn't calibrated or was unplugged, and the smoke alarm wasn't working, and the smoke alarm burned up with the house. Or the smoke alarm, or how many have ever had a smoke alarm that would go off just with your cooking? 
you might need to stop cooking. And, uh, and maybe you need to watch how you cook. Maybe you put too much smoke out there. But, but a smoke alarm probably shouldn't do that. It depends on where you place the smoke alarm. But you know, with minor things... But here's the issue with the smoke alarm is that some of, some of you here, the slightest little thing puts you over the edge because you have too sensitive of a conscience. It's like a smoke alarm that hasn't been really ac- accurately. So the slightest little smoke, someone's cooking, and you're just like, ah, is that true about me? Oh. You know, you're preoccupied with that. And you beat yourself up. And then there's others of you. Your house is burning down, and the smoke alarm never goes off. That's frightening. So the tendency is to go to one extreme or the other. I have a smoke alarm that goes off with the slightest little bit of smoke. You know, someone says something, you know, that I, I hurt them, and then I, I think about it, it's like, I hurt them. <laughs> I can't believe I hurt them. Oh, I wish I wouldn't have hurt them. It's like, get over it, dude. You hurt them. So go and apologize and work through it and move on. You know, it's kind of like, it's, a, it's hyperactive smoke alarm. So what you have to do is, and so, I mean, he was able to just be matter-of-fact, said, no, that's not true. You guys are just pulling that out of your head. You guys are just making that stuff up. That's not true. And he just continued on. It's like, Poof. So he doesn't have this hypersensitive kind of smoke alarm. And, and so you've got to understand guilt. Guilt is being troubled over, over what you've done. And that's what makes the, the kind of the smoke alarm go. So here's, here's how it should work, or shouldn't work. If you do bad and feel good, that's bad. Would you guys agree with that? Okay. So if you do bad and feel bad, that's good. Okay? That's when your smoke alarm is probably working really, you know, effectively doing well. So guilt is being troubled over what you've done. Now, you've got to make a distinction between true guilt and false guilt. Let me talk, to you, talk you through this real quick. So, so if you're like me and tend to be a little bit hypersensitive, oftentimes that's false guilt that's working. False guilt is the feelings is the feelings, feeling troubled without the fact. You can't put your finger on anything that's really gone down, you've done wrong, you just kind of have a general sense of feeling crappy. Okay, I probably shouldn't have used that word, huh? Oh, I shouldn't use that word. Okay, it was okay because you guys used that word and, and worse. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. Okay, I'm kidding. But um, where was I with all that? So I got sidetracked. So yeah, you, so, so uh, false guilt is that you're troubled, you have the feelings without the fact. So you have the feelings without the fact. True guilt is the fact, you can put your finger on it, you say, yeah, I was offensive. Yeah, based on God's word, the standard, I, I stepped outside the lines there. It's the fact with or without the feelings. Does that make sense? You guys track with me? So, so here's the deal. So if you if you've violated what God's Word says, you're guilty, whether you feel like it or not. And so so you've got to let God's Word be the standard. Now, this is how you've got to do this, and this is all part of the calibration of it, and this is why it's so important. A couple of verses here, 1 Timothy 1.19, it talks about, it's the context, is wage the good warfare. So this is a war that we're in. And so our enemy is going to throw a lot of guilt into our life. He wants us to be overwhelmed with all sorts of negative, you know, feelings and things like that to keep us... Uh, sidelined. And so this is what he says in 1 Timothy one nineteen: Holding faith in a good conscience, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. So this is why your conscience is really important part of this. 1 Peter 3.16, he, 
He says here, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So how do you calibrate your conscience? Well, it's got to be based on God's Word. You've got to be reading God's Word. And then you always go back to God's Word. If you have the troubled feelings, you think that the smoke alarm's going off, you go back and you ask God, you know, search me, O God, know my heart. Is there any wicked or evil way in me? Lead me into the way everlasting. It's Psalm 139, the last two verses. I think it's verses 24 and 25. That's what you do. You say, God, here's my heart. Search me. Reveal to me. Help me to walk through this. Now, I was reading a book here recently. I read way too many books, but this particular book was, a, was really a good book. He said, Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. And uh, sounds like an interesting book, doesn't it? But this guy was trying to get beyond the fact that it's more than just uh, signing the card, walking the aisle, getting dunked in the tank. Is a lot of people think that they're Christians because they've done that, but they don't really have a relationship with God. And that was the point that he was making. But he was talking about the feelings that we often get. And this is what he said as it related to the feelings. See if you can follow this. It took me a couple reads through. I'm only going to read it once, so hang in there with me. He said this, Imagine three men walking in a line along the top of a narrow city wall. Since we're talking about walls, I thought it was a good illustration. So you've got three men you know, walking in a single file along a narrow city wall. The first in line is named fact. So the first one is fact. The second is faith. The third is feeling. Because the wall is narrow, they need to pay careful attention to where they step. As long as feelings' eyes are on faith and faith's eyes are on fact, they will all do fine. But the moment that faith takes its eyes off of fact and turns around to check on feeling, both faith and feeling will fall off the wall. Do you guys track with me? Okay. Any of you not track with me? Okay. You're afraid to even admit, aren't you? So you got feeling is following. Who's this? Faith. Faith is following fact. As long as faith keeps his eyes on fact, he's okay. But the minute he turns around and looks at feelings, both faith and feeling do what? You will fall off the wall when you focus on your feelings. But you've got to keep your eyes on the fact of God's Word. That's how you calibrate your faith. That's how you keep going. Feelings are fickle and dangerously misleading, and Scripture never points us to our feelings for assurance. Feelings come from assurance, not assurance from feelings. Don't feel your way into your beliefs. Believe your way into your feelings. So you always go back to the Word. Okay, here's the next couple. Got to knock this out. So uh, that's a good conscience. So here's the last two. Uh, Number four, establish good boundary markers. Establish good boundary markers. And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. So what are boundary markers? You guys know what good boundaries are? Boundaries are the, uh, are, you keep the, the bad out and the good in. And they also tell you when to say yes and when to say no. Now, this is what I've found interesting in my life, and I know he'll, you'll find it true in your life. If Satan can't get you to sin, 
He'll keep you busy, so busy you'll tend to exchange the, the best things for kind of the mediocre things in life. You'll try to cover too many bases and you'll, and you'll tend to, to run after things that are good things you know, and if, for instance, in, in ministry, for me, I would chase after and do ministry, and that's really a good thing, but it's not the best thing for me if I neglect my family and my wife. Would you guys agree with that? But that's what he'll get you to do. He'll get you so preoccupied with so many things and too many irons in the fire. And so always keep that in mind. Keep your priorities straight. It's always God, your relationship with God. And then if you're married, it's your marriage relationship. And then it's your parenting. And then it's your job and ministry. And those kind of all flow together like that. But it always goes back to your relationship with God. Um, verses 10 through 13, this guy says, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. But I said, Should such a man as I run away? So, what is he recognizing here? He's saying, Wait a minute, I don't need to be afraid. So, let me ask you this What do you do when you have fear and anxiety that's inordinate? Some of that's appropriate, that you can respond to the situation. But when you have that inordinate anxiety and fear and worry, can you say, hey, wait, 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 boundary time. I don't need to be afraid. I'm a child of God. He has lavished His love upon me, 1 John 3, 1. So that's a good boundary. It's like, wait, 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 wait. I'm keeping that out. I'm keeping the good in, bad out. See, he's, that's what he's doing. And then the guy says, hey, let's run to the temple. He says, I have no business going to the temple. So why? So that they can, they can then make fun of me because I did something I wasn't supposed to do? So he's got good, healthy boundaries based on the objective truths of God's Word. Hebrews 2.1 says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. So in other words, we need to have, we need to have good boundary markers. We used to uh, go to uh, spend our summers, weekends, primarily through the week. We'd always try to get back in time for church, which was always good. But we would go to Roosevelt Lake. And I remember when our kids were small, we'd take our boats up there and, uh, and we'd camp out on the beach. And, um, and our kids would go out and play out in the water. And this is what we'd always tell them, that in the midst of the play, from time to time, look up and make sure you're within these boundary markers. And there were usually a couple boats and then there was this boundary marker that was a little bit further out, which was this uh, buoy. And then if you got beyond that buoy, it was really extremely dangerous. There's boats out there racing and people skiing. And if these kids floated out there, they could potentially get killed. And I'll never forget this. We were too busy talking and carrying on there on the beach. And my daughter Natalie and her friend had floated right out to the edge of that buoy where there's these boats just racing by. And there was nobody in our camp that noticed it, but someone from another camp came over and said, Hey, uh, are those your kids out there? And we all looked and we went, Oh! It was like we all freaked out, and then finally somebody went out there and brought them in. And, and here's the deal. Here's the deal. What are your boundary markers? How do you know, how do you know if you're drifting into dangerous zone in your life? into a dangerous area. I can't help but think that some of you are drifting right into a really dangerous area and you don't even know it because you don't even have good objective boundary markers for your life. See, some of the boundary markers for me would be, uh, would be coming to church regularly. Would that be a good boundary marker? How about connecting with other Christians regularly? Those are good boundary markers. Reading God's Word. Prayer. 
Those are boundary markers. Serving others, helping others, loving others. But let me take it much deeper because you can do all that and still, still kind of miss it. I was reading, uh, let me just ask you these questions. These are questions for sleepy and nominal Christians. So, they, so, so you can go to church, you can read your Bible, you can pray and still not have this happening. But this is what, here's much deeper boundary markers for me. This is the kind of stuff that I'll ask myself. How real has God been to your heart this week? I mean, we live in a world that's God-ignoring. And you can fall prey to that. You can go weeks without even thinking about God. I haven't thought about God this week or, or today. How clear and vivid is your assurance and certainty of God's forgiveness and fatherly love? I mean, do you know He loves you? Are you living in the reality of His love? I mean, that's, that's crazy when you begin to understand that. And are you doing those things? See, spiritual disciplines are those things that increase your capacity to experience more of this. But you can do all of that and still not experience this. So you need to do all of that and ask yourself these hard questions. To what degree is that real to you right now? The love of God. The love of God. I don't know. I don't know about you, but when we, when we did that, thank you for that, the songs this morning, because when you kind of went to the different, kind of mixed a few different songs like that, it was rich. I can only imagine... Oh, my goodness. Did that, did that kind of melt you a little bit? Was that good stuff? Praise God. And then he went into that little part where it says, uh, one day in your... Better is one day than a thousand. I go, yes. That's awesome. And I, it, it was, I was having a moment, a, a Jesus moment right over here this morning because I was imagining, oh, my goodness, one of these days when I see him face to face. But wait a minute. Through His Holy Spirit, I can see Him now spiritually and experience His presence in my life right now. (laughs) I love it. Oh, I I long for more of those times. So see, when I study God's Word, when I hang out with other Christians, that's my heart. I want to experience more of Him and and begin to experience His love. And, and, And those are just kind of a few of the questions. Are you having any particular seasons of delight in God? Do you really sense His presence in your life? Sense Him giving you His love? See, those are boundary markers for me. If it's been a while since I've really had a sense of his love on my heart, it's like, oh, I'm drifting. Oh, God, I want, I want to experience your presence more so now than ever. See, and that's how we, how we stay on course. That's how we finish strong. So if you want to finish strong, have a transcendent purpose, avoid foolish alliances, maintain a good conscience, establish good... Uh, Good boundary markers. Here it is. Last one. And pray for God's strength. That's what he does in verse 9. And, uh, and they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will, uh, and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Nehemiah isn't praying. Did you notice this? He's not praying for less problems. He's praying for what? More of God. That's what he's praying for. He's praying for more of God. Here's what your need is. It's not less problems. You know, God, take the heat off. It's increased capacity to experience more of God, to see His beauty and His glory. Ephesians 1, 18 through 23, in essence, is that prayer. He says, Glorious Father, give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation that we may know You better. Open the eyes of our heart. See, the reason for that is that, I mean, it's one thing to know that God is with you and for you and will never leave you, but it's another thing to be enveloped with a sense of those truths on your heart. 
That's what he's praying for. This isn't just some rote prayer. You see him. This was his sixth prayer, and then he did his seventh prayer in verse 14. That's just saturating the book. I mean, he's wanting the very presence of God. He's wanting to have a big view of God because he knows that if he has this big view of God, he can endure the difficulties of life. Prayer is meant to make the truth of God shine bright in our hearts. When you know that you know Jesus and that he knows you, then you, you'll have all the strength you'll need to face anything. And uh, when you are entranced by the greatness and goodness of God, no trial can overwhelm you, no temptation can allure you. You'll notice on your notes I put Isaiah forty thirty one, and we're going to sing the song that goes along with that in just a moment. But you guys are familiar with it. How many have memorized Isaiah forty thirty one, where it says, They that wait upon the Lord... Any, anybody memorize those verses? Kind of know what those verses are? They're powerful verses. They that wait upon the Lord shall be what? Renewed with strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles, run and not be weary, walk and not faint. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. We're going to sing that song in a minute, but let me give you a little bit of an understanding of what this word wait means. The Hebrew word for wait means to twist or bind. It's, it has the idea of a rope. ESV Study Bible says this. It's savoring God's promise by faith. So it's savoring God's promise by faith. Um, we have around our yard, we have a, an acre land where it gets irrigation so the water goes really deep into the ground and then we have uh, pretty big trees and we have these snail vines that are on the fences and uh, during the freeze all those things died and so we've had to pull them off the fence. But when they grow... If we were to plant them in the middle of the yard, they just kind of grow out flat. They'd have no structure. But those snail vines grow by weaving themselves in and out of the chain link fence. So the strength of those snail vines is not the snail vines, but it's the chain link fence that they are weaved in and out. That's what that word means. They that wait upon the Lord. That when you learn to walk with Him and enjoy Him and practice His presence and pray to Him as we see Nehemiah doing. He just has these prayers. Just, it almost seems like it's just as he's going throughout the day, encountering God, experiencing God, enjoying his love. Oh, God, show me more of you. It's that, when you do that, then that's where you will have the strength. In fact, it says, it says, but they that wait upon the Lord, for the Lord, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Would you stand with us as we sing this song? Make this song your prayer. Next week, we wrap up this teaching series. We're going to talk about momentum. How do you maintain that momentum? Don't want to sit on your lead. Man, if you're growing in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus, you want to keep growing. And so we're going to talk about momentum, sustained forward progress. Make this song your prayer. Have a moment right now where you have a bigger view of God. I'll guarantee you, you have a bigger view of God, you can face anything in your life. God bless you.